Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Philip Melanchthon, you may or may not recognize the name, was a great Reformation theologian. And a story is told that one day he was interacting with his friend and mentor, Martin Luther, and he said to Martin Luther, he said, today you and I will discuss the governance of the universe. To which Luther reportedly responded, today we'll go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. That's a great picture of resting in the Almighty, allowing the Lord to take on his shoulders what only his shoulders can bear. And Lord knows we could use some of that rest today, couldn't we? We could use some of that where we put on God what only God can bear and unload burdens from ourselves onto his eternal shoulders. We'd all like a break, a respite from doubt, from fear, weariness, and loneliness, and stressors, and frustrations, and obligations, and burdens. We'd love to be able to roll that all up into a ball and just give it to the Lord. Say, Lord, you take this. I'm going to leave this all to you. I'm going to go fishing, or something like that. I would love to be able to do that. We all would be able to love to be able to do that, unload onto the Lord, and have the rest that only he can provide. As I was thinking about that this week, Psalm 46 came to my mind. I want to read parts of that for us now as we think about it, prepare to go into Matthew chapter 11. Some of these words will be very familiar to many of us. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And then the Lord interjects himself, his own voice, into this psalm and says, Cease striving, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the psalmist concludes, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. As we come to Matthew chapter 11 this morning, we're going to be invited together as God's people to cease striving. And remember who our God is, who the God is that we serve. We're going to be invited to rest, to unburden ourselves and place on God's shoulders what only God can bear. And what we're also going to see in this passage, these 10 or 11 verses we're going to look at together today, we're also going to see that the realization and the experience of and the enjoyment of that rest that God promises us is only available to the humble. In fact, what we're going to find is that pride actually robs us of rest while humility sends us fishing. It's humility that gives us the peace and the rest that we so long for and that only God can provide. I trust that you've found your way to Matthew 11, starting in verse 20 this morning. This passage actually begin, begins negatively. It begins by illustrating what happens when we respond to Jesus, not in humility, but in pride. 
In other words, Matthew gives us an example of how not to find rest. This is what not to do when seeking that rest that we so desire. Verse 20 and following. Then he, that's Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Clearly here, Jesus is chastising a representative group of first century Jewish cities. Here we have three specifically named Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus is rebuking them. Why? Because they had been provided with all the evidence needed to respond rightly to Jesus, but they didn't, but they didn't do it. In fact, verse 20 is fascinating because it says, of all the miracles Jesus performed, and there were many of them, of all the miracles he performed, most of them, the majority of them were done in these places, on the streets of these cities. And we do well to remember here that we're not dealing, when we talk about Jesus' miraculous ministry, we're not dealing with cheesy sleight-of-hand tricks. You know, we're not dealing with untestable, unobservable, quote-unquote, healings, the likes of which characterize many modern ministries today. That's not what we're dealing with when we're talking about Jesus' miraculous ministries. No, what we're talking about here is bona fide, public, reversing the laws of nature. That guy has never walked before in his life, and now he's doing jumping jacks type of miracles. Miracles that people saw with their own eyes. In fact, last week in verse 5 of this same chapter, we got a bit of a summary of his miraculous ministry, if you'll remember. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. That's the type of miracles that Jesus was doing before the very eyes of these people, the majority of which were in the streets of cities like these. They saw it firsthand. And we remember over the last number of months of our study through Matthew that these miraculous signs served as proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that he could do what he was claiming to do. Jesus came on the scene in the first century and saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the long-awaited king, the Davidic king, I'm here to bring in this kingdom that you've been aching for. And the people of, of Jerusalem were saying, and the people of Israel were saying, okay, that's good to hear. I mean, there was a guy last month saying the same thing. How do we know that you are legitimate? And he said, see that guy over there? He's never walked before. Boom, he's walking. See that guy, that, that's a dead person? Alive again. He's doing these unbelievable miracles to proclaim he is who he says he is. He's giving proof, unrejectable, un, uh, clear proof. And he's doing it all over Israel, particularly in these cities. And yet, we find in this text that they reject him anyway. You've got to think, at this point of Jesus' ministry, we come to the end of Matthew chapter 11 today. At this point, Jesus has got to be scratching his head and thinking, what else do I have to do to convince you all? Like, honestly, what else can I do? It's almost like... If you're traveling and you're coming back into our country from abroad and you come to the customs agent and, and he says to you, I don't believe you are who you say you are. It's like, oh, here's my passport. I still don't believe my driver's license, health card, tax forms. 
Here's the deed to the house I own in Canada. What else can I possibly do? And the person still says, no, I don't believe you are who you say you are. You know, at some point in that conversation, their unbelief becomes unbelievable. You say, what else can I possibly do to prove my identity? Are there hidden cameras around here somewhere? Am I being pranked in some way? And that's really what Jesus is dealing with here in Matthew chapter 11. These cities, were, they received most of the miraculous signs. These cities, they will not believe, they will not repent. And Jesus is saying, what else can I possibly do to convince you I am who I claim to be? And I can do what I'm promising and longing to do for you right now. What can I possibly do? The proof of identity that Jesus provided was, was overwhelming. So much so that Jesus says in the section I just read a moment ago, he says to them, even notoriously depraved and wicked and hard-hearted cities like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, we all know Sodom, even those cities, they would have repented dramatically in sackcloth and ashes had they seen what you have seen in this generation. It would have convinced them easily, and it is not convincing you. Ultimately, it's because first century Israel had been given so much evidence and still refused to believe, it's because of that that their judgment would be so severe. Woe to you. Woe to you. It's a pitiable situation. Woe to you. It's helpful to consider today our modern-day charges of, of manslaughter and murder, both terrible things, both deserving of punishment. But in our system, murder is worse. Why? Because there's intention. There's a willfulness to it. So Jesus comes along here and he says, cities like Sodom and Tyre and, 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 and the like, places like that in Sidon, they're charged with manslaughter. And they, they will be judged. It's terrible. But cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they're murderers. Why? Because their rejection of Jesus was willful and fueled by pride. Woe to you, Jesus says. According to Jesus, while they think they deserve exaltation, look at verse 23 again. They think they deserve exaltation, and you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? No, they're going to receive humiliation. You will descend to Hades. It's pridefulness in their resistance to the evidence and resistance to the Son of Man, resistance to the King Resistance to the one who would sit on David's throne. Pride's a killer. Pride is a killer. It binds and blinds. Many victims who are oftentimes very willing, blinds and binds that pride. We know from Scripture that pride was the cause of Satan falling as he wanted to rule like God. He saw that throne. He said, that should be my throne. Pride is what caused Adam and Eve to fall, as they wanted to be like God, to see good and evil, to understand we can be like God, and pride caused them to fall. And pride causes each and every one of us to fall as we wrestle between thinking we are gods and rejecting our need for the one true God. We oscillate between those two, two things, back and forth. It's pride. Pride is what keeps the unbeliever in unbelief, ultimately, when it boils down to it. They claim the evidence isn't convincing, or they, they demand God tailor his self-disclosure to their needs, to what they long to see. I know I see all of that, but I have this one question that God is just not answering. It's demanding God tailor to you. It's, it's pride. What else could we call that but pride? And this prideful unbelief, it manifests itself in many, many different ways. It manifests itself in self-sufficiency and 
self-love and self-importance and self-medication and self-hatred and self-loathing, self-pity, self-aggrandizement, self-righteousness, self-justification. You notice a theme here. What is at the very center of all of these manifestations of pride in our lives? It's always the self. It's always us. We become the center. We demand that God shifts to meet our needs. And, and sometimes if we're really hard-hearted, we begin to make God in our image rather than understanding that we're made in his image. The God I serve, the God I want to believe in, he looks more like this. It's just pride. And pride is what keeps the unbeliever in unbelief. They see the evidence, but like first century Israel, they refuse to respond rightly. But pride is also what robs the believer of maturity. Unbelievers don't have a corner on pride, do they? And for, unbeliever, or for believers, it's particularly tragic because we've been freed. We've been freed from the bonds of sin. We have been, the jail cell has been opened and we have been sprung from jail and yet we repeatedly turn back and put ourselves back in prison. We dabble back in that which we have been freed from. Although we've been freed from such self-centeredness, pride entices us to come back once in a while and we need to understand that when we as Christians do, we are giving up the rest that only a life of faith can provide. And instead, instead of living Instead of leaving the governance of the universe to God, like we should be doing, we take things upon ourselves that we are not built to bear. It's burdensome. It's wearying. It's what robs us of rest, this pride. Pride's a killer. It's a killer that needs to be killed, honestly. Instead of responding to Jesus with pride, we need to do the opposite. We want to respond in humility. And that's really where Matthew goes next in our passage. Look with me again to verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. According to Jesus here, what brings praise and pleasure to God the Father, the universal sovereign, what brings him praise and pleasure? What brings him praise and pleasure is that, that it's not the wise and intelligent that understand, but it's infants. That it's not the proud and accomplished that grasp Jesus' message, but the lowly children. It's not the pharisaical type, but the common type that get it. And this has pleased the Father to make it this way. This contrast we see continues between pride and humility, the know-it-alls and the know-nothings, the well-respected and the not-respected. And while the world believes it's the former that can figure out the meaning of life, the clever, the accomplished, well, it's them who can figure out the meaning of life and who blaze a path toward fulfillment and meaning via intellectual impressiveness. Jesus here celebrates the fact that God has decided in his perfect wisdom and grace to make it such that only the humble, only the humble grasp these saving truths. Verse 27 says, Jesus continuing, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Saying here that no one can know the Father except through the Son. John the Apostle in his gospel said many, this similar thing many times. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. 
says, Jesus Christ, he's seen the Father, and he explains it to us. Colossians 1 says the same thing. Hebrews 1 as well. Flip over to John chapter 6, and we find a similar statement from John again. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Saying, knowing God the Father comes through knowing God the Son. And we find in our verse here, in chapter 11, verse 27, that the authority has been given by the Father to the Son to decide who's privy to that knowledge. Didn't he say that? He said, everything has been given to the Son, he says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's almost like if a friend of yours tells you a really juicy secret and says, don't tell anyone except those you really think need to know. All of a sudden, you have this power, you have this, this information that you get to now decide who gets access to the information, who's worthy of knowing this secret. In a very similar way here, Jesus is given authority to reveal the Father to those he chooses. A good follow-up question would be like, then who does he choose? I hope I'm on the list. You know, I hope I made the cut. Who is it that the Son is going to decide gets to know the Father through himself? We say, praise the Lord. He's already answered that in this passage, hasn't he? In verse 25, it's the infants. It's the humble. It's those who are nothing, not the intellectual elites. It's those who are lowly. We saw in this text that the proud, like, like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they don't get to know the Father because they weren't humble enough to accept the Son. It pleases the Father, and it's the prerogative of the Son to reward humility with knowledge of the Almighty. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says a very similar thing. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, For consider your calling, brethren, speaking to believers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. And here comes the answer to why. Here's the why question. Why would he do this? So that no man may boast before God. So that no one may stand before God and say, I figured it out. I thought my way toward God. I, I logic, I reasoned my way towards salvation. I strove and white-knuckled my way in, in holiness. I was a good person. I gave enough. I did all these things. I figured, no one can say that. No one can boast because it pleased God the Father to reveal himself through God the Son to those who are humble, to those who are lowly. See, while pride's a killer... Humility is the key that opens the door to truth. And the final verses of our text today give us a beautiful invitation from Jesus to experience that truth through humility and find rest. And find rest. Verse 28. It's hard not to read this emotionally. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want that rest. If it's coming from Jesus, I want that rest. It must be the best type of rest. I want that rest. See, in a time in, in Matthew's gospel where national Israel is in the process of rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, 
the Lord turns to the individuals and he says, while the nation is rejecting me, you, individual, you can still come. Come to me. He's not rejecting every single individual. The nation is rejecting him, but he still turns to the individual. He says, come to me, you members of that nation. I invite you, come to me anyway. All, who, all you who are tired of toiling under the burden of the Mosaic law and the regulatory traditions of the Pharisees, throw those off and come to me. I will give you relief, he says. All who are fatigued by the uncertainty of your status before God, all who are sick of working toward meriting God's favor, he says, come, I will give you rest. Say, well, how does he offer this relief? Verse 29 and 30. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We notice here that even after coming to Jesus, there's still a burden to carry, isn't there? There's still a yoke to put on. There's still work to be done. It just gets lighter and easier with him. Now, the yoke was literally, a, it was a wooden bar that was carved out, that was placed across at least two or more animals, usually oxen, so that they could work together, connected the animals, they could work together, they could plow soil or pull heavy loads together. That was the yoke, the burden placed upon these animals. But as we go on in the biblical account, we see that this concept of yoke is actually used in other ways as well. In fact, we see it used to describe oppression that was placed upon God's people. For example, in Leviticus chapter 26, the Lord God says to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God speaking to his people says, I came along and removed that heavy oppression that was placed upon you. I took it off. And then as the biblical account continues to unfold and expectation for the Messiah starts to grow and grow and grow as we come to the book of Isaiah, we, it becomes very clear that the Messiah is going to come and likewise remove the yoke of oppression off of God's people. The yoke of oppression from other nations, the yoke of oppression of sin, the yoke of oppression of the law, all of it, the Messiah will come. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4, this is Yahweh speaking to the Messiah who had not yet come at that point. And he's saying this, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. So all of this rolled together. Jesus invites the people in Matthew chapter 11 to come out from under the knee-buckling burden of the Pharisees and take upon themselves instead the king's work, a service characterized by, by total rest because the king's character is what? It says in the text, gentle and humble in heart. Not like the whip-cracking Egyptians who demand more and more and more work, and it's oppressive and it beats down. Now, when we put the yoke of the king on us and serve the king, it is characterized by his character, gentleness, and humble in heart. There's still work to be done. When we follow Christ, we know there's still work to be done. There's a call in our lives to pursue holiness, to share the good news. There's still work to be done. There's still a burden to carry, but serving Jesus is unique. And hear this, it's unique in that it flows, service of Jesus flows from gratitude and not guilt. 
service of Jesus, it flows from love and not legalism. It flows from a place of peace with God and not in pursuit of peace with God. That is the message of grace. That is a message that we need to remind ourselves all the time. I am not serving the Lord to earn favor with him or to confirm my status with him as a child of God. No, it's been done as we sang about today. It's finished as he declared on the cross. I am right with God through faith in Christ, period. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is a done deal. And because of that, because of my new status, because of my future certainty, because of all of that, I can with freedom and joy and gratitude run after the Lord and serve him with that light, light yoke, knowing that all that is secure and cannot be undone. That is the message of grace. That is the message of Christianity. We are not pursuing rightness and justification with God. If I slip up, I need to make that up somehow. No, it's done because, as was mentioned today, we are in Christ, and Christ is perfect. And when God looks at me, the wretched sinner I still am, he sees Christ and Christ's righteousness. This is the light yoke of Christianity. There is no legalism here. There is no guilt. There is none of that. I'm not pursuing peace. I have peace with God. And therefore, I run after God with joy, a spring in my step. And that is rest, friends. That is rest. It's a rest in this life, and we run toward that perfect rest to come. That the author of Hebrews says still exists for us today. That rest is still available. Perfect, perfect rest. See, Jesus, in this text, and up until this text in Matthew's gospel, he has claimed to be Israel's Messiah. And those who responded in prideful rejection, they are promised what? They are promised judgment. But those who respond in humble acceptance, they are promised rest. Rest, that rest that we ache for, they are promised it. And we know if you've been around the church for any amount of time, these terms continue to this day. They did not go out of style when Matthew wrote chapter 28 and closed the book. These continue to this day. Jesus claims to be the Messiah still now. He is the deliverer, not just of Israel, but of all of those who would come to him for salvation, believing in his person and his work. If we respond in pride, whatever brand of unbelief it comes in, there is no rest. There is no rest. But if we come lowly to Christ, if we come humbly to Christ, if we come as the infants that we are, if we accept his claims in that with that posture of humility, if we do that, we are promised that rest now and forevermore. Not retirement, not freedom from service, but light, easy burden and rest for our souls. All this, if we come lowly to Christ, come lowly to Christ, we have two possible responses to Jesus' claims. I am the Son of God. I paid for the sin of the world. And I'm coming again. I promise you eternal life. I promise you resurrection. We have two possible responses to that. One is pride. So it's not enough information. I don't believe it. There are all these other claims. How is this the right one? All of these, I need more information. I need something else. I need something that will scratch me just the right way to make me... Or we respond in humility. We say, that's enough information. All I need to know is I'm a sinner. You know, that he demands perfection. There's a God in this universe. He demands perfection because he's perfect. And as deluded as I am sometimes, I can't claim perfection. 
That's all I need to know. I'm not perfect. I fall short of that standard of perfection and therefore am separated from God for eternity. But Jesus came perfect and paid the debt that I owe but cannot pay and rose from the dead. And he defeated death forever and says, anyone who believes in me will live even though he dies. Raised from the dead. So I want to speak for a moment just to those who may be listening who have never done that, who have never trusted in Christ. I am begging you, come lowly to Christ. Come lowly to him. Humble yourself and accept him for who he is. It's good, good news. That's what Christians claim. This is the gospel, which means good news. It is true. There's no better news than this good news. Come lowly to Christ. Kill the pride in your life. See it for what it is. Humble yourself and find rest. Find rest for your weary souls, a rest that cannot be found in any other way in life, cannot be found by working, cannot be found by building a family, cannot be found by building a reputation. All of that is just spinning our wheels. Whether we realize it now or nearing the end of life, it does not give rest. There's only one source of true, lasting rest, and it's Jesus Christ. And he says, come to me. It's a sweet invitation. Come to me. All who are burdened, all who are heavy laden, all who feel the pressure of life in this fallen world. And I suspect that is every single one of us. We feel that burden. And Jesus said, it doesn't have to be so. Find rest. Come to me. So if you have never trusted in Christ, I am begging you today, humble yourself, come to Christ, find rest. Now for those of us, which is the majority of us, who have trusted Christ, the admonition is the same. We need to come lowly to Christ. And and I don't think it's a stretch if we all sat down and just thought for a few minutes and said, what are the things that steal hours of sleep from me? What are the things that burden my soul? Is it stressors at work or relational issues? Or is it doubts that I have with my faith? Is it uncertainty about my salvation? What is it that is causing me angst? And we could list those things. Friends, Jesus is reaching through time and space by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and talking to every single one of us and saying, Come lowly to me. Lay it down at my feet. Come lowly to me. I will give you rest. That is not your burden to carry. Trust in me. If we believe that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if we believe that our God is sovereign, if we believe that our destiny is secure, if we believe that this life is a vapor, and we are enduring it in his power to his glory, if we believe all of those things, then we should be able to unburden ourselves to leave the governance of the universe to God and go fishing, whatever the case may be. It's not easy, but this is a discipline that as Christians, we are being invited to by Jesus. He's saying, come to me. I will give you that rest. My burden is light. Take it upon yourselves. Don't re-burden yourself for no reason. What's stealing your rest? This week, I encourage you, think about things, these things. If you need to write them down, do it. And then just say, Lord, take these from me. Take, these are not my burdens to carry. These people that I love that don't know the Lord. These people that I love that have strayed from the Lord. These, these legitimate burdens. Father, if I'm honest, I can't do anything about them anyway. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to declare my neediness before you. And I'm going to lay it at your feet and say, God, i got to go fishing. I can't shoulder this anymore. Give me the rest that you've promised. It's offered to us. Man, do we want that. C.S. Lewis once wrote, We are taller when we bow. That's so true. We are taller when we humble ourselves, when we bow. When we humble ourselves before God, that's when we stand the strongest. That's when we have the most rest. That's when we have the most peace is when we bow before the Lord and, and give to him what only he can handle. 
It's then when we humble ourselves that we can, like I said, go fishing and leave the things like governing the universe to God. It's yours, God. It's yours. We must come lowly to Christ. It has to be the posture of our heart as we walk following our Lord and Savior. And what a beautiful provision he's given us as weary pilgrims. A former pastor of mine once shared a story from his life I want to now share with you as we close our time together this morning. This is what he wrote. He says, years ago, my oldest son and I were lingering in a local gift shop. Our eyes fell upon a row of large posters framed and stacked together. We laughed at some of the nutty ones, nodded at some of the serious ones, and then meditated on one of them. It was a picture of a misty morning on a calm lake. A little skiff, in a little skiff, were a father and son looking at the two corks floating at the ends of their fishing lines. The sun was tipping its hat over the mountains in the distance. Stretching across the scene were peace, refreshment, and easygoing small talk. Two wistful words beneath the border of the image appropriately summed up a message everybody needs to hear today. Take time. In my younger years, I would have been irritated by that message. Like many young people gearing up to make their mark on the world, I would have preferred the image of a speedboat cutting through the waves at 80 miles an hour. My preferred caption would have been, don't waste your time. But at the same time, I would have been nagged by the seemingly incomprehensible words of that old well-worn hymn by William Longstaff. Take time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Now, decades later, with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and many miles and mistakes behind me, those words of Longstaff long make a lot more sense. Through years of striving to rush through life at my own fast pace, I began to understand the chastising whisper of the Lord in Psalm 46, verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. Likewise, Jesus' counsel in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 makes so much sense after having tried to outpace the one with whom I am yoked. Come to me, and I will give you rest. We've got to come to him, friends. Come lowly to Christ. Throw off the shackles of pride that want to entangle us and steal our peace of mind, and come lowly to Christ. Take time to be holy.